0: Hey, everybody. Um, hey, for those who don't know me, my name is Sam, and I'm one of the elders here. Um, I'm excited to get into Mark chapter 7. Um, but before we do, I know that Catherine just prayed, but do you mind if I pray? Um, I really can use the help. And if you could do me a favor and pray for me as I pray for you, I would love that. So let's go in prayer quickly. Father, um, how good you are to love us. How good you are to confront us with hard truths. Lord, this is a hard truth we're confronted with, so I just pray that you'd help us. Help us to learn, help us to see, help us not be blinded by this text, and let your power through your Holy Spirit pour out into us so that we can learn and to absorb this truth deep down in our souls. We need your help. I need your help. Lord, we know that you hear us and provide help. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Hey, um, I don't want to surprise you all, but if you haven't noticed... I'm Korean, right? (laughs) Surprise! And in many Korean households, it's very normal to have like three generations living together under one roof. And so, man, I was able to experience a lot of love, a lot of care, and a lot of hospitality. you know, sometimes I, I, my wife would crack on me and joke on me because I would experience it too much in the past. Like, uh, there are times where um, I was so spoiled with love that when I'm playing video games I'm on the computer, my grandma would spoon-feed me fruit while I'm playing. All right, It, it was that bad. And so I, I experienced a lot of hospitality um, getting played out in my family and just inviting people in our lives all the time. And we're always just trying to be generous with our time and resources. Um, interestingly though, I, I also remember hospitality outside my home, whenever I would go to my uh, best friend's Lachit's house, and his mom is like the sweetest little Indian woman ever. Uh, she would cook all these delicious Indian dishes for me that, um, that I would never like have seen before or smelled before. They're all new. And I would even go over there. This this is how bad it is because I love her cooking so much. I would even go over there when he's not there. And uh, poor lady, because I think that when I was there, I think she would think that I was always starving because I would just devour all her dishes like I was a baby doing their first cake smash. Um, I would just clean out her kitchen. But she would just continually lavish me with her love and hospitality. And um, you know what? Abby and I feel that here at Crossway. We feel the generosity, the love and the service from all of you guys. Um, and I've been repeatedly been blessed and brought to tears by it. See, we all experience these forms of goodness that point us to the goodness of God. And I'm sure that everyone here has shared in that experience and seeing the goodness of God in people in general. And as human beings, we all share in recognizing and experiencing these things to various degrees the goodness of God. But you know what we also share? Whether you're from France, Japan, America, Jamaica, or Spain, we all share the imperfections in our hearts. Everyone, if you are honest with yourselves, knows that there's something fundamentally off within us and we know this in several ways number one we know this because we feel it we feel it we're not always happy clappy people we have a whole range of emotions that involve sadness anger fear anxiety that just bombards us from left to right number two we we also grapple with things like self-doubt Thoughts of inadequacies, questioning our abilities, our worth, and even our appearance at times. Um, And number three, zooming out at society at large. There's always, ever since the beginning of human history, a conflict happening, right? A conflict happening. Whether it's prejudice, stereotypes, biases, racism, sexism, bigotry, social inequalities, abuses of power. Like, you don't have to teach people that there is something woefully off within the human heart. And what's interesting is that almost all the major religions of today, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, have been teaching that fundamental truth for over a millennia. That although the human heart is capable of doing enormous good, The human heart is broken and is capable of unimaginable evil. We all very much are aware of the fact that there's something very off in our hearts. That we're not as pure as we should be. That we are not as good and not even close to perfect. That we have this defilement that sticks to our souls like sap. But you see the term defilement that we see here in verses 5 to 20 that uh, Mary just read. It's a little outdated, right? Like, like, we don't use that word in today's terminology. Like, yo, bro, I just, I just ate, like, a defiled burrito yesterday, and it's, like, defiled my stomach up, right? I'm going to worship the porcelain god today. Like, we don't, we don't use that word, right? So if we were to update defilement using today's terms, modern terms, we would call it shame, S-H-A-M-E, shame. Shame. And here are how one secular psychologist defines shame. Quote, shame is a complex emotional experience characterized by a sense of inadequacy, unworthiness, or humiliation. It is often associated with a deep belief of being flawed or defective as a person. Flawed and defective as a person. Now, isn't that what we sense deep down? And in order to get our terms right, it's helpful to distinguish shame from its twin brother, guilt, right? So in his book, Untangling Emotions, Alistair Groves explains the difference as this, quote, Guilt communicates I've done something wrong. Shame communicates something is wrong with me and others can see it. Doctor of Neuropsychology Edward T. Welch elucidates this quest concept further for us by using courtroom analogies, quote, guilt lives in the courtroom where you stand alone before the judge and it says you are responsible for all the wrongdoing and illegally answerable. You are wrong, you have sinned, the guilty person expects punishment and needs forgiveness. Okay. Shame though, shame lives in the community. Though the community feels like a courtroom, it says, you don't belong. You are unacceptable. You are unclean. You are disgraced. The shame person feels worthless, expects rejection, and needs cleansing, fellowship and acceptance. And Dr. Welch continues on to say that once you identify shame, you can find it everywhere. End quote. And that's true, right? We find it everywhere. Take for example, just just look at your own life. Like how often do you feel like a failure? How often do you feel worthless, not good enough, not meeting up to a certain standard, your standards, someone else's standards, and longing, longing for someone to come along to say that you're worthwhile, you are accepted and loved? Again, shame is everywhere, and it's residing in all of us. Here's something interesting. Uh, back in 2018, the National Academy of Sciences published a famous landmark study titled Cross-Cultural Invariance in the Architecture of Shame. All right, that, was, that was pretty technical sounding, but um, the design though was simple, okay? It was this. In this study, they looked at 900 individuals across various cultures and languages, wanting to see how shame works in different communities. And the researchers had a theory. Okay? That, you know, a long time ago when people were in primitive hunter-gatherer type societies where food was scarce and you need to, and you need to survive or else a bear will, will kill you, right? That shame would play a powerful role in surviving together as a people. And, you know, to me, that totally makes sense. Like if uh, Bubba Ray was laying around all day just chilling, not gathering food and sticks, and not building shelter, or even putting some of his like famous barbecue sauce on like random stuff. I'd be like, "Hey man, I get all my boys and we start clowning on him to, "Hey, you got it. You got it. You got to pick up your slack. We're going to die here. You better do the work that we expect you to do, right?" We would collectively shame him. And so, the theory for the study was as you observe how shame works in these survival type communities, versus those of Western modern safer communities, that the shame dynamics would look drastically different and that you'll actually get less of it. But get this, the researchers found something very surprising. The data showed that the pattern of shame encountered in these survival-like communities was the same as the Western modern safer communities. And so what this suggests is that shame is not a byproduct of cultural evolutionary processes. But shame actually resides deep down in the human psyche, what we Christians call the heart. And so here is the million-dollar question that has been plaguing mankind since the very beginning. And what our text will deal with today, and that is, how do we clean, purify, cover our shame? How do we clean and purify, cover our shame? You know, secularists, they have their own answer, but pre-17th century all the way to today, the main answer to that question is religion. Religion, which promises you that if you do steps A, B, C, and D, you'll be made clean. You'll be made right. That there's like this gentleman's agreement with God that if you clean up your dirty act of shame on the inside, God will then keep his bargain and guarantee that will happen. And the religious community in which you'll live will then not shame you as well. And so going to our text today, we see these Pharisees and scribes come about. And so these Pharisees and scribes were the creme de la creme of religious folk. Like if regular religious folk were the level of my son Micah's soccer grade team, these Pharisees and scribes would be like those big, bulky D1 college athletes with facial hair. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you, you like watch the game and you see a picture of them. You're going, oh, my gosh, where are they feeding these kids now? Like they look older than me, right? Those, those are the Pharisees and scribes of the day. And so good were they, in fact, that on top of God's law, they built a network of religious rules and regulations to keep themselves extra pure. Like, extra And we see in the beginning of chapter seven how that worked out in their life. So go back to the text with me, read with me, verse one to four. Verse one, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, and pots, and copper vessels, and dining couches. I don't know what dining couches are. That'd be amazing how to wash those. Um, I have four kids. I want to know how to wash my furniture too. Um, all right, so a couple of things here. Right, first off, real quick here. Notice how in verse 1, these scribes and Pharisees had come from Jerusalem, right? And if you remember, looking up to verse 53 in chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples were in Gennesaret now. And Jerusalem to Gennesaret isn't like the like going down your block, going to your local quick trip, okay? Jerusalem to Gennesaret is like 90 miles apart. And in that day, if you had like a hot rod of a horse, it'll probably give you like 50 miles, right? So this is a long journey for them to come all the way here. So something tells me they didn't come to on such a long journey it's because they wanted to go on summer vacay, right? right. They had an agenda. And then the second thing, these were the same scribes and Pharisees back in chapter 3 that said Jesus was possessed by the devil himself, Beelzebub. And that's like the deepest burn you can give to somebody if you're religious, right? You are possessed by the devil. And so... These Pharisees and scribes were gunning after Jesus and his disciples. And so, by the way, do you guys know how you can tell when you come across a Pharisee or a pro-religious rule follower? Um, This is free, all right? So you can can write this down. Um, You know you're around a Pharisee when they're always being offended by something. You know you're around Pharisee when they're always being offended by something. Like there's like this searchlight of judgment that's always continually on the lookout. And they're just wanting to be offended by something. And they're not only offended, they actually say some very nice commentary, right? Some good discerning wisdom. Kinda reminds me of Facebook, right? And so here, these pro-religious rule keepers Right away, the searchlights of judgment are like on. And in verse 2, see, they found something. They saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is, unwashed. Right? If you, if you were to read that, what not you want to say? Like, hey, somebody called the cops. They didn't wash their hands. This is a big deal. Right? No it's, no, it's not, right? If, if I were there, if I were there and um, I were observing verse 2, man, I'd be kind of a little perturbed. I'd be kind of ticked up, like, what is going on? Like, hey, um, Mr. Pharisee, uh, are, are you the CDC? Are, are you in control of the mandates now? Like, you guys got to relax. It's not a big deal. It's not like they just walked out of the bathroom without washing their hands because if they walked out of the bathroom then yeah their their hands would be defiled right (laughs) we would give them that but this is different see the issue here for the pharisees is not a physical cleanliness but one of spiritual cleanliness spiritual purity no shame See, the Jews would follow the tradition set forth by the community of elders who one commentator describes as quote, honored Jewish tr- teachers of the law whose traditions were to help address the areas in which the law does not explicitly address, end quote. And so um, these traditions were put in place to keep the moral purity, the moral cleanness of the Jewish people where the law was silent. Um, and that's what good religious folk would do, right? Like, if I were to give uh, my son, Micah, a, a rule to say, hey, it's Father's Day, do not eat Daddy's sandwich. Don't even touch it. It's in the fridge, okay? And Micah goes, oh, yeah, no problem, Daddy. I hear you, it's Father's Day, I get it. Um, I'm not gonna even open that uh, fridge. But you know what? I'm not gonna even go into the kitchen, not one foot. Oh, man, thank you so much, Micah, that was, that was awesome. Wait, it, wait, wait, in fact, Daddy, in fact, how about I just never get out of bed today because I'm sure I'm not gonna eat it and I'm not gonna bother you. Whoa, Micah, my Micah man, well done. I would then say and think, I'm like, man Micah, that is very impressive. A little excessive, but nonetheless very impressive. And that's what the traditions of the elders did, that they, they made rules upon rules to make them extra clean. And so what do you think Jesus says in response to these Pharisees in verse five? Look at me, look with me at verse five. <laughs> and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? All right, real quick here. Notice, notice how the Pharisees lob stones of shame to disciples and to Jesus in verse 5? Why do your disciples, Jesus, you need to be shamed, not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Your disciples need to be shamed, Jesus. Isn't that interesting, by the way, how shame still works today? Like, hey, did you see your kids at act, acting all out? You need to do something. Hey, did you see what you just said to me? Did you, did you know what you just said to me right now? You, blah, 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 need to pay for this. Shame still happens today the same way. So is Jesus going to accept their shame, the shaming of the Pharisees and, just and his disciples and say, hey, you know, thank you so much, Mr. Pharisees and scribes, uh, you know, you guys are excessive, but nonetheless impressive, okay? Thanks for shaming me and my disciples into purity, right? Is that, is that what he's going to say? Read verse 6 to 8 with me. Let's find out. And Jesus said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of the elders. All right, so if you've grown up in church or even called yourself spiritual, verse 6 to 8 should scare the absolute Jesus out of you. Because Jesus gives one of the most damning judgments he can give to religious people by quoting Isaiah 29, a judgment passage on rebellious Israel. Like, If you could flip with your Bible back to Isaiah 29, and you'll see the judgment that God gives in a greater context. It'll help us understand it more. So skip to Isaiah 29, and we'll go to verse 9. Old Testament, Isaiah 29, verse 9. All right, so we'll go to all the way to verse 14, 9 to 14. All right, check this out. Verse 9, Isaiah the prophet. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed when men give it one who can read, saying, Read this, he says. I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, Read this, he says. I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of the wise shall perish and the discerning, discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. See? with all the phantasmal visions of the seers, the gallant declarations of the prophets, and the smooth oratory skills of the worshipers, you know what the reward is? Their reward for all their religious activity is blindness, hardness of heart, a prison of ignorance. Put in today's lingo, it could sound like this. With all your studying of theology, with all your Bible reading, with all your fancy theological degrees, Bible studies that you attend, memory verses, your serving and singing in church, your reward for all of that activity is a blind, deaf heart. Hypocrites. And in these next few verses, Jesus gives a specific example of how lost these Pharisees are. And you know what's interesting? Interestingly, Jesus doesn't address the question of hand-washing here that was posed to him, but he gives another example. And he does this to highlight the fact that it wasn't like just one rule that they didn't misunderstand. That it was their whole posture and way of thinking that is off base read verse 9 to 11 with me and jesus said to them you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of god in order to establish your tradition for moses said honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die but you say if a man tells his father or his mother,' Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. All right. Kind of confusing. Let's break it down a little bit. Corban is the Hebrew word for offering. And it was based on a rabbi custom of devoting specific goods to God. And you find this in like Leviticus 18 and Numbers 27. And it's like something similar like uh, today if you were to donate property or money to a charity, right? It, the charity then owns it after you donate it all, right? But when the Pharisees and scribes declared Corbin, it wasn't altruistic offering to God. Dude, they were shady, and they were enacting Corban for their selfish benefit. Because when the priest declared Corban, it was to take advantage of a loophole to not financially help their parents, and not technically breaking any of the rules. The NLT has a great translation. Let me read it to you real quick. Here, what Jesus says, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God, honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father and mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you. For I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. How messed up is that? That the Pharisees and scribes care more about keeping their traditions, their pockets full, instead of honoring their father and mother. And Jesus points that straight out. And let's just like pause and like, be in awe of the wisdom of Jesus here. Like, he isn't engaging with their original question in verse 5 about, like, washing hands. Jesus is like, I'm not going to play that game. And so, like a skilled physician that doesn't just treat the symptom of the disease, Jesus goes straight to the disease itself, showing them how in verse 13 they make void the word of God in order to hold on to their traditions. And And notice how he ends verse 13. And many such things you do. And many such things you do. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that there's a cancer in the way they worship God. And it's not just like the washing of their hands or taking care of their parents, the cancer has spread and it's systemic. Now, it's easy to look down at these scribes and Pharisees, right? Um, I know uh, going through the series, reading the first fruit chapters, listening to the sermons uh, through Mark, I'm thinking, man, these Pharisees and scribes, they're messed up, right? Uh, Isn't the truth obvious to them? Like, they're reading their Bibles. Come on. Like, they should know better. Like what Dan says, they're a little hamster wheeling hinks just spinning on the hamster wheel of always running, working to clear their shame before God and with their community. But dear brother and sister, if you are like me, we must turn off our own searchlight of judgment. Because we could be a Pharisee against Pharisees. See, Pharisees may shame people for not following the rules, but Pharisees to Pharisees will shame them for following the rules or following them not in the right way. It's like two different sides of the same coin. And the shame code that Ed Welch again applies here, shame is everywhere. We cannot get out of this shame game. You want to know another terrifying truth? That for those who are serious about living well, being a good person, holding on to the traditions, or trying to keep the clear commands of God, you know what happens in regards to shame in their life and in your life if you're one of those people? The harder you strive to keep the commandments, the more pervasive shame becomes in your heart. St. Paul talks about this in Romans seven. If you wanna turn there, you can, otherwise I'll read it. Um, So we're in Mark, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Romans chapter seven. If you could turn there, that'd be great, but I'll read it to you, Romans chapter seven. Start with me at verse 7. Romans 7. All right, verse 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. See that? That's what the law is supposed to do. Paul is saying the law shows you what sin is. It provides a a framework in which you say that this is sin and this is not sin. It's very clear. There's no grace. But here's what happens. Here's the issue. Skip down to verse 18. Read with me verse 18. Verse 18 to 20. For I know that nothing good dwells on me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to look, to carry it out. Do you see shame building up in that background? The shame in the back? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. See the tension of shame that Paul is wrestling with? verse 21 to 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This is the apostle Paul trying to follow God's law And I guarantee nobody in this church is going to follow God as much as Paul is, right? And here he is wrestling with the tension of shame. And yet, you see, the more that Paul wanted to do right, the more that he wanted to delight in the law of God, the more he saw his inadequacies, the more he saw his imperfections, his shame. See, friends, the more you strive, the more shame is revealed in your heart. And keep in mind, religion is saying that if you do A, B, C, and D, your shame will be dealt with. And so you may not necessarily look like this. You may not necessarily look like a typical religious person of like going to to church, reading your Bible daily, listening to Christian songs, deal with your shame but you, my friend, still deal with your shame through religious activity. See, maybe for you, it looks like bowing your head, looking into the blazing glory of the almighty iPhone, right? Trying to fill your ears and eyes with enough noise because you are afraid to hear shames whisper to you in the quietest, loneliest moments in your life. But no matter how hard you try the whisper's still there, isn't it? Maybe for you, it may look like going to the pantry and just stuffing yourself full because you crave something good to just smother the feeling, that awful feeling of shame you have on the inside. But you know, after you digest it all and feel super bad, Shame is still there. And maybe for you, it's the cycle of seeing your kids being disobedient or not being like the other kids his age, and you just lose it. You just feel like a failure of a parent, which is the lie of shame. And so you strive more to be a better mom or dad. You look at parenting tips on Instagram, listen to podcasts on parenting, make better, more nutritious meals. Strive harder, harder, and harder. Or maybe for you, my friend, it looks like indulging in YouTube videos, news commentary shows, TikTok or Instagram Reels, of seeing people with different political, social, theological stances that is different than yours and just seeing them shamed. Or sometimes you'll see on the headline, Owned. This person's going to get owned. If you're a teenager, they're going to say, owned. You know, put that P on that owned. Don't look that up. <laughs> because you like that and they delight in it because it feels so good to see other people get shamed while not dealing with your own shame, inadequacies, and flaws. Um, You know, uh, personally, I've been dealing with a lot of uh, health issues for the past two years. And um, especially in the past three months, it's been terrible. Like, uh, there are times where I couldn't walk it was that bad. And for me, when I I literally couldn't do anything besides lay on the couch and see my wife, um, Abby, serve me and just take care of the kids on top of, you know, just doing every household duty, I can hear shame's whisper in my head. Especially for someone that prides himself on doing stuff, right? I'm a doer. I don't need to talk to you. Just let me just, give me a task and I'll just do it. I felt like a failure of a father. I heard its whisper, failure, unworthy, inadequate. And so on the days that I did feel better, I strive to do so much on doing things that I, I get sick again. And I just quickly fall into that shame staircase again, repeating that cycle. And so, my friends, this is where all the religious activity only goes so far. It cannot wash away the defilement that is inside, the shame that is within and this is what Jesus says. This is what Jesus says. Read verse 14 to 15 with me. Verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to him, hear me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus introduces a radical concept at this time, that the way that people have been worshiping for centuries is wrong. And get this, so radical was this little statement that Jesus said that disciples had to do, uh, are you sure? What just happened? Wait, what? Jesus had to repeat it again, verse 17. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without string? Were you guys paying attention? Do you not see that whoever, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach and expelled, thus he declares all foods clean. And he said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. See, nothing you do on the outside can dirty your soul on the inside. No rule, no tradition, or food can defile or shame you. By the way, Jesus is freeing us to eat bacon now, right? In this chapter, it's like, praise God. And check this out. But in the next few lines is the main reason why religious activity cannot clear the defiled heart the shamed heart right and that was verse 20 to 23 all these evil things come from within and they defile a person hey The real issue, Jesus is saying, hey, the real issue that humans have, the brokenness, the defilement, the shame that is in our hearts, it cannot be cleaned by any outside means. It cannot be cleaned away by the law or any religious tradition. It cannot be cleaned away from a fad, a new diet, a new way of thinking, a new philosophy, a new habit. It cannot be cleaned away by motivational speech, a new devotional you read, a new type of workout you're doing, a giving to charity like a Corbin, paying a good deed forward. It cannot be cleaned away by serving those around you till you are sick again. And it cannot be cleaned away by a biohack a reading of a book, or listening to a podcast, any religious or irreligious activity can never clean away the shame on the inside. The problem is that the heart is both defiled and the defilement maker. It is both the shamed and the shamer. And so what we need, my friends, is not another religious activity, What we need is a rescuer to enter into the scariest room of our hearts, to see the wallpaper of the hard truths plastered over our identity, that we are, in verse 21, evil, sexually immoral, murderers, thieves, adulterers, coveters, wicked, deceitful, envious, slanderous, prideful, and a foolish people to look at all those hard truths on the wall and for that rescuer to despise them, to despise those statements. And in his loving anger, the rescuer starts doing the unthinkable. The rescuer starts ripping those truths away, statement by statement, immoral, rip, unworthy, rip, Envious, slanderous, prideful, wicked. And when he is finished ripping it all away, he then, with that same love and vigor, proceeds and plasters new statements over your heart, over your identity. Righteous, pure, honest, gentle, faithful, gracious. Generous, self-controlled, content, kind, humble, wise. That is now who you are. And friends, the good news is that that rescuer has come. The rescuer has come. The rescuer, the son of God, has come to do what no other activity could do for you. In Hebrews 12, the author writes that Jesus not only endured the guilt of your sin on the cross, but he also looked at the shame of the cross too. The shame that whispers out, you are unworthy, unloved, unacceptable, and flawed. And Jesus despises that and conquered over that truth. And he gives you those True statements, so that not only is he the founder of your faith, but he is the perfecter of your faith. That is who you are now. A new creation, a new identity, new statements over you, so that you no longer have to live in shame. Praise God. And so as I end, as way of application. I want to ask you guys two things. Number one, where does the whisper of shame, defilement, show up in your life? You're a failure. You're unworthy. You're unacceptable. And what do you do to clean yourself up from it? Second question what would it look like for you to give that over to Christ? To actually really believe that you were bought with a price, to believe that you are righteous, pure, loved, and accepted, not from what you do, but from who you already are in Jesus. And my friends, we can apply it right now as we celebrate communion and think about the broken body and blood shed for us, where does the whisper of shame and defilement show up in your life? What do you do to clean yourself from it? And so as you think about that, we want you to then receive the elements and then preach the gospel to yourself.